Well, good morning, church. How are you? Man, it is good to see you here today, and I'm glad we get to worship together. Uh, listen, uh, we've got a lot to jump into today, but before, I want to make sure we understand kind of what's going on up here. If you're new, uh, you might be wondering what the whole set is about. We are right on the cusp of Vacation Bible School. That starts tonight, really, with our parent preview night, and then tomorrow morning, if full force. And this has always been a huge ministry here at the church. Sandy Stevenson and our whole team, thank you, Hayes, uh, have done always a great job of just investing in Vacation Bible School so that we can share the gospel with as many kids as possible. And look, a ton of you have already put in a lot of work. We had a whole crew here all week long building everything you saw out in the commons. I mean, literally, that train set over there has been getting worked on for like a month and a half, two months. Uh, and then all of this up here, uh, who are some of the people? You raise your hand if you were here working this week. Uh, just raise your hand and just kind of, can we give these guys a hand for all the work they've been doing? Look, I mean, it was a ton of work uh, to get all this stuff done. And that's not to say anything about the work that's about to be done. We have well over 100 crew leaders. Is that right? 50 some odd crew leaders, more than that. How many? 64 crew leaders and a lot of other volunteers who will be helping. That's a lot of you. Raise your hand if you're helping out this week with Vacation Bible School. More hands going up. There you go. Lots of them. Give them a hand too. Thank you. But listen, there is a goal to all of this. Listen, we want the kids to have fun. That's obvious. Uh, but there's always a deeper goal there is that they might have an experience that will be so impactful uh, that they will have an opportunity to open their hearts to receive Jesus Christ, that they would learn about him and grow in their relationship with him. And that some of them, yes, would give their lives to Jesus this week. And so all through this week on this campus, whether they're in this room or all over the place, or maybe just talking with their mom and dad after, Afterwards, there's an opportunity for them to know the Lord in a deeper way. And so as we embark on this week, we really want to be praying for what's about to happen. Uh, many of you will be on campus all this week, but some of you won't. But if you think about us, listen, conversations are happening. Opportunities are happening. And so even if you can't be with us physically every morning, I hope that you'll be praying every day for what's going to be happening on this campus through all this work that's gone into it. And so we want to take that time right now. So if we would, let's just bow our heads and close our eyes. And you might know of a kid that's coming to Vacation Bible School Maybe it's some of your neighbors. I imagine it is, whether you know it or not. But we have a bunch of our kids and, and hundreds more who don't go to our congregation typically who will be with us for a week. And so as names come to mind, as faces come to mind, can you already begin lifting them up to the Lord and asking the Lord to bless them specifically by name? And you may not know specific names, but maybe you can just think of VBS in the past. You've seen the pictures of what's going to happen in this room and on this campus. And if you can even just visualize the hundreds of children who will be with us on campus this week, and can you lift them up? God knows every single one. Lift them up to the Lord and ask God to bless the work of this week. Heavenly Father, we are just thrilled at the opportunity we are going to have uh, to be able on campus to minister in your name to these kids. We didn't get to do that last year, and so we're not going to take it for granted. God, what an incredible opportunity we have to share you with some of our kids, many of whom are growing in you, who this week can grow even deeper in their relationship with you. 
But Lord, there's gonna be a lot of friends, neighbors, just people who will come and, and be with us this week and many of them won't know you at all. And so Lord Jesus, we are asking a blessing from you this week, a movement of your spirit on this campus, through all of our activities, through every single one of our volunteers and leaders, Lord, that you would speak into the lives of hundreds of children in lots of different ways, in ways that they particularly need to be spoken to, in ways that they can understand. Would you speak by your spirit that they might know you, that you made them, that you love them, that you have a plan for them, and that in you there is eternal life that can be found nowhere else, and certainly not in this world. And so, Lord Jesus, we just lift up this whole week. We ask that you would protect our, our children, our parents, our volunteers, uh, but that every single minute that people are on this campus, Lord, that your spirit would move in multiple ways, that you might be glorified and that people might be brought to you in a deeper way. Lord, thank you for all the leaders for the work that's gone in, but we ask a blessing upon them. I pray you would just pour words into their mouths to know exactly what to do and what to say at precisely the right moment to speak and minister to each individual child. But Lord, we just cannot do anything on our own. So we are trusting your spirit to do it. So we offer up this week to you, this, this set, these activities, all this work. God, we offer it to you and ask for you to do what we cannot and transform the lives of hundreds of children. We love you, Lord. Thank you for this opportunity. In your name we pray and we all said... Amen, amen. Let's continue that prayer as we go throughout this week. But now, grab your Bibles, if you will. We're gonna go to Ezra chapter one. Ezra chapter one is where we're going to be this morning. That's Old Testament, so you're gonna have to look. It's before the Psalms, not after, don't be fooled. Ezra chapter one, verse one is where we'll be in just a second as we're continuing on in a new sermon series called Return, Rebuild, Renew. We're looking at a very particular uh, period in Israelite history, but one that is very germane for us today. Ezra chapter one, verse one is where we'll begin in just a moment. While you're turning there, uh, at some point during our lives, we are all going to begin to wrestle with the question, what is my place in the world? Uh, we just went through graduation season, and I imagine there's a lot of graduates right now, whether high school or college, who are asking that question. Okay, I graduated. What am I supposed to be doing? Where am I? Where do I fit? What is my place in this world? Or maybe you began to ask that question during the pandemic. Everything kind of went topsy-turvy. The whole world stopped, and you began to reevaluate and look at things and say, okay, wait a minute. What is my place in this world? Where am I supposed to be? And typically, as we all grapple with that question in one way or the other, we will usually get it wrong in multiple ways. Uh, and we will usually fail in one of two major ways. For some of us, when we have to deal with that question and say, okay, where is this? Where do I fit in the world? What, what, what is my, my role, my place in the world? We come up with an answer that revolves around us. We said, well, listen, the place in the world is wherever I want it to be. See, the world is a better place now that I am in it because the world is about me. We need to mold everything around me, whatever I would like to do, whatever I would like to be. That's why the world is here is to help me and I'm here to help it. You see, it's all really about what I want to do. We would call that a delusion of grandeur. You ever met anybody like that? You might know anybody like that. Don't point, that's rude. It really is. Why are you pointing at me? That's even ruder. I can see you, you know that, right? L look, I, 
we sometimes find a place where we just think, hey, this is all about me. And we try to walk into the world. We see it through that lens of like, wait a minute, this is all about me. That's the way some of us wrestle with that. Others of us, we go to the opposite end though. We say, Adam, no, when I try to answer the question of what's my place in the world, our answer is nowhere. And the world's not, uh, doesn't have any place for me. The world doesn't care about me. I don't really think I fit. I don't belong. I, I don't think I matter at all. In fact, if, if I just went away tomorrow, nobody would, would even notice. I don't, I don't have anything to offer. I don't, I don't have anything to give. And so I'll just kind of keep to myself. But, but I, don't, I don't have anything really to give because I am insignificant in this whole grand scheme of things. People would call that an inferiority complex. Maybe you know people like that. People that you value and cherish and care about, but they don't really value or cherish or care about themselves. They just kind of keep to themselves and and just kind of assume that they don't matter at all. And and both of those things would be missing the point. Both of those things are wrong. Instead, when it comes to this question of where do I fit in the world, God has a very different answer. He says this to every single one of us. He says, you and I are a part of God's larger story. You and I are a part of God's larger story. The story's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about any of us. The world is not here for you. Listen, it's just not about us at all. But at the same time, you and I have a vital role to play in God's story that is unfolding. You're not insignificant. You and I are not the main character. God is the main character. But you and I have a vital, a very particular role to play in this time, in this place. And God is inviting us into this grand story that he has been unfolding. And you have a very important and particular part to play. You and I are a part of God's larger story. And that is something that the Israelites are having to wrestle with and deal with, but this is necessary as we move into this next phase of the return. If you're here with us last week, we said we're talking about the return of the exiles. Last week, we started and told the story about how for generations, the Israelites had ignored God. God kept warning them and they wouldn't listen. And God sent Jeremiah to preach for over 40 years To say, listen, if you don't change your ways, God's going to destroy everything. And for 40 years and more, they just refused to listen until God did it. He came in and leveled it all. Jerusalem was, was raised to the ground. The people of Israel taken into exile into Babylon. But God had a plan. He said, even there though, I'm not done with you. I have plans and after 70 years, I will bring you back to this place. And so we're skipping forward in time a little bit now to the time when they do actually return. 50 years has passed since last week, since we saw the destruction of Jerusalem and the last wave of exiles be sent over into Babylon. But 50 years later, something interesting happens. Here's Ezra chapter one, starting in verse one. Listen to what it says. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. 
And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go and rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver and with gold, with goods and with beasts, with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out on the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Let's stop right there. All right, so things have changed. The people have been living in Babylon all this time, but now there's been a change of power. Through a lot of political machinations, the Babylonian Empire has collapsed. Now the Persian Empire has taken over. And the new ruler, Cyrus, has a very different policy when it comes to conquered peoples. He says, no, I'm going to send them back where they came from to let them live on their own land. But there's a lot of more happening underneath the surface. First off, we need to recognize this is God moving. This is the next chapter of the story. What God looked like he ended at the end of Jeremiah and really at the end of 2 Chronicles where Jerusalem is destroyed is by no means the end of God's story. In fact, if you're there in your copy of God's word, you can look back on the page previous to the end of 2 Chronicles and it's very interesting. If you look at the end of Second Chronicles, chapter 36, verse 22, and I'll put it up here too, it says this. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah the prophet might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what we just read. The end of Second Chronicles and the beginning of Ezra 1 are the exact same verses. That's there on purpose. This is the next chapter of the story. Ezra is picking up right where 2 Chronicles left off. This is a new chapter in the history of what God is doing. And so Ezra now is picking that up and moving with it. But we just noticed this twice now. It says this is to fulfill the prophecy of Jeremiah. Remember, God prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem, but he also prophesied that there would be a return. God was not simply judging his people. He was bringing discipline on his people. But his plan was not over. He says, no, I still have plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future, and God will absolutely bring his plans to pass. And so what is happening now with Cyrus is being done by the hand of the Lord. And it is coming to pass just like Jeremiah prophesied. Now, Jeremiah prophesied 70 years, and what's happening here is a little bit earlier than that. This is actually 50 years away. This is going to be happening in 538, uh, which is, uh, if you go back to 586, which is when Jerusalem was destroyed, that's right at 50 years. You say, well, why is it early? Well, there's a lot of different ways you can calculate this. You can go from uh, the time of the first exiles until the time of the new exiles returned. You can go from the destruction of the temple to the actual rebuilding of the temple. That's actually going to happen a little later. The 70 years roughly works out there. But this is 50 years since the last time we saw Jerusalem. Now, 
let's be honest, um, when we start doing things like this and going, we're 50 years from last week, it, it, it's kind of hard to get your head around, isn't it? We just kind of throw this around and we're reading history and it's easy just to flip the pages and not realize that we're dealing with real people. These are real people who had to truly deal with these circumstances. And just because a lot of time has passed doesn't mean that they weren't a part of that. See, we don't, we don't understand time very well. We kind of, it kind of gets fuzzy in our brains. Uh, when the way we think about way back when or today or the future, we just, we just don't think about it correctly. I had a buddy of mine, he sent me some disturbing facts the other day. He said this, he goes, remember Back to the Future where Marty McFly went back to the future, back to the 1950s, you remember that? He said this, if Marty McFly went back to the future, the same number of years that he went in the, back to the future, he would go back to the year 1991. That's when he would go back to. If he left today to go back, way back to the 50s, he would go back to the long ago distant time of 91. That's terrifying. That really is. How many of you remember the song, The Summer of 69 by Brian Adams? The Summer of 69. You remember that? Talking about way back in 69. If Brian Adams wrote that song today, he would be singing about the summer of 2006. <laughs> ah! It blows your mind when you realize, I thought that was way back then. Oh no, it's today. Listen, these are real people living in real times. And so these are people, the oldest of whom could still remember Jerusalem, but for a lot of them, they were born in Babylon, but they've been hearing their entire lives about this land, about this God, about this promise. These are real people. And so God is saying, listen, I am fulfilling this even in, in one lifetime. And so he's sending them back, but please don't miss, it is God sending them back. Look at this in verses one and verse five. You can look there in your text. But God says this twice, Ezra 1.1, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. And then down in verse five, he says, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go to rebuild the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem. God's not just letting history kind of play itself out. His hand is on the wheel. He is orchestrating these things and he is stirring up nation states to make things happen, but also he's stirring up his people so that they will return. God is working in the midst of this. And sure enough, many of these exiles are going to return to Israel. Now, how many are we talking? Well, we find this out in Ezra chapter 2, verse 64. It says, together, the whole assembly was 42,360. Now, that is a lot more people than who went into exile in the first place. So they have been building themselves up. They have grown. They have multiplied in Babylon during this time. But 42,000 people are going to pick themselves up and go back to Israel. But here's the trick. Not all of them are going to go back. That's a large number. It's not at all the total number of the Israelites who could go back. You see, God brings a call. He stirs up his people and says, you now have a chance to go home. You now have a chance to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. You have a chance to go back and be in the promised land that I gave you. And 42,000 are gonna stand up and go. There's gonna be a whole lot and probably a lot more who will say, I just don't know if I wanna do that. I feel that stirring of the Lord, but I just don't know if I, I wanna actually go back or not. And they've got reasons why they might not want to go back. The first is this. Israel is a trash heap. 
This is not going to be fun. This is not like picking up and moving from one city to another, from moving from one nice house to another nice house. No, when they go, they are going into nothing. This is actually worse than the American settlers who moved into the West, who just kind of went out to kind of discover and and grab things. No, they're going back to a burned out set of ruins with a lot of hostile antagonistic neighbors. They're gonna have to rebuild everything from scratch. Everything that they need, they're going to have to rebuild on their own. It's gonna take years. This will not be easy. And some people say, I just don't know if I wanna do that. Secondly, they've got businesses there. Remember what God told them? He said, hey, listen, build houses, have families, plant gardens and vineyards. Well, they did. They prospered. What's very interesting is we actually have archaeological record of them in exile. We've got clay tablets, which are the equivalent of receipts today, that are written in Akkadian, the Babylonian language, but it's Jews talking to other Jews, and they're selling things, and, and they're, they're selling things with businesses, and, and they're making profits, so you can see all this in the archaeological record. They've built businesses. Imagine if you got taken away from your home, you got thrown into a new area, and you spent years in startup culture. You spent years building up a new business, years making this thing work, and then after years, you finally got it rolling. You've got something to hand down to your kids. It's now profitable. You can now rest a little bit, and then the Lord comes along and says, I want you to leave all of that and go back home. All that stuff you built up to survive, I want you to leave it all and go back home, and some of them just don't want to do that. Here's the third thing. They're safe. They're incredibly safe. You see, after the destruction of Jerusalem, they were taken into exile into Babylon. But God was doing something very specific, something they didn't see at the time. You see, God brought his judgment on Israel through Babylon. He had basically unleashed Babylon like a hurricane that levels Jerusalem. But it wasn't just Jerusalem. Babylon is going to end up executing God's judgment over the whole region. Literally like a, like, like a category five hurricane that's just going to scour the landscape. Babylon goes through and scours everything. But the exiles, they're in the eye of the storm. You know where the only safe place has been for the past 50 years? Babylon. The only place that won't get leveled time and time again? Babylon. Do you know where God put his people during this tumultuous time? He put them in Babylon. They didn't know it, but they've been sitting in the safest place on earth for 50 years. God had judged his people. He also had plans for them and was protecting them. And they knew that. They said, man, we have been in the center. We've been safe. Why would we leave the relative safety even though we're, we're under the, this, you know, the Babylonian authorities or now the Persian authorities? Why would we leave this? Well, just because it's been saved doesn't mean it's gonna stay that way. God's doing more. He says, listen, I got judgment for them too. You need to follow where I send you. But for the people sitting there, they said, listen, that's gonna be a lot of hard work and I've built a whole lot of stuff here and it just feels really safe and so I just don't, think I want to go back. What would you do? Put yourself in their shoes. Remember, these are real people. They have real lives. They have real kids. They are thinking about their future. What would you do 
if God put it into our hearts and said, hey, listen, I want you to leave everything and I want you to go back and return and rebuild and renew what I have done, would we do it? That's the question they're wrestling with. But for 42,000 of them, they make the answer and say yes. Even though it's going to cost them, even though it's going to be difficult, even though they have to leave a lot behind, they are going to go back to Israel. And now looking at all that, you might say, why? Why would they do that? Because they understood that they were a part of God's larger story. They understood that they weren't here just to survive. They were not here just for themselves but they understood that they were a part, an important part, and a crucial part of God's unfolding story in the world. You see, God had created them. He had made them. He had given promises to them. He had given this land to them and said, through this land, through this people, the whole world is going to be blessed. It's how they understood themselves. They did not think of themselves primarily as individuals. They didn't even think of themselves primarily as a family. They thought of themselves as part of the people of God. And they could not understand themselves apart from that. This is their identity. How could they not follow their God back to the place where God had given them? And you can actually see this play out in the text. I want you to flip over to Ezra chapter 2 for just a second. Now, as you begin to look over Ezra chapter two, you are gonna see an eye-watering list of names and numbers. Now, these show up periodically throughout scripture, and typically, whenever you and I see 70 verses of names you can't pronounce and numbers you don't understand, we typically look at that and go, oh, no. Flip, and then we move on. Like, Adam, what am I supposed to do with that? I can't even pronounce those things. I'm not going to understand it. It's a bunch of places I don't even know where to put on a map. It's numbers I can't even put in context. And so I'm just going to skip on because I just don't think I'm going to get anything from this. And look, I'm tempted to do the same thing. I mean, even as reading this list, it's not like you're reading a list of Abraham, Daniel, Moses. It's crazy people you've never heard of before and might never hear of yet. So why read it? Because... There's a couple things here that are very interesting that let us know the mindset of the people going back. Look at this first. I want to show you this. Here's Ezra chapter 2, verses 2 through 6. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parash, 2172. Numbers of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Arah, 775. The sons of Pahath, Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2812. Are there something weird about that? Okay, look at Parash for just a second. Do you honestly think Parash has 2,172 relatives? That there's a guy named Parash who has had that many kids and grandkids and great-grandkids? Remember, he's only had 50 years. Listen, he might have been fertile. You ain't that fertile. (laughs) Nobody's got 2,172 kids. Here's what that tells you. Parash is not the name of the guy going back to Israel. Parash is the ancestral name of his family. These are names, when you're looking at this, these are not the names of individuals who are returning back. These people are claiming their ancestral family name. That 2172 covers everyone in the clan. Everyone in his ancestral family. Parash lived in Israel where they're going back to. Do you see what they're doing? 
When they think about themselves, they don't think about themselves just as an individual. They're not thinking about their nuclear family. They said, no, I'm a part of something greater. I'm a part of something that's more long lasting. I'm a part of a long line of people that God created and called and my family belongs in Israel. And so they don't talk about their own name. They talk about their family name. You see it again later in the list. Look at this next one. Here's Ezra chapter two. I think it's for, uh, verse 21 through 23. It says the sons of Bethlehem, 123. The sons of ne- uh, Nepopha, 56. The sons of Anathoth, 128. Now, two of those names you don't recognize, but one you do. Which is it? Come on now. <laughs> Bethlehem. If you didn't get that one, we should talk. All right? <laughs> Come on, gang. Christmas. I know it's in June, but still. I right, look. All right, that's not the name of a person, that's the name of a town. Okay, so here in the second half of the list, you're seeing town names, not people names. Why? Because God gave specific pieces of land to specific families. They didn't just move around wherever they wanted. God gave specific pieces of land to specific families. When people said, I'm of the sons of Bethlehem, the men of Anathoth, okay, they're saying, hey, listen, this is my ancestral home. This is the place that God gave to my family. This is the town to which I belong, which is my link back to who I am. You see, this list, it doesn't look like it makes any sense, but the way it's ordered, the way it's written out is letting us know the identity of these people, who they actually are. And they say, we are the people of God. We're a part of God's unfolding larger story. The story isn't about me. It's not even about my individual family. I am a part of God's plan to save the world. And so if God is calling me back, I remember my home. I remember my ancestral name, and I am going back to be where God has placed me. So if God calls me, I must go. That's why they're going back. It's because that's how they understand themselves. It's how they understand the world. They see themselves as a part of God's larger unfolding story. And so again, I ask you, would you go? With the price tag that's attached, would you go? Would you leave everything and go? And if I understand myself as a part of God's larger unfolding story, that's when I begin to follow him no matter the cost. Now look, regardless, even with all of this, it's still very hard for us to relate to this, is it not? You may say, Adam, listen, that's great and all, but it's just hard to relate to a people who are so identified with their race and their nation and their land. That's just not how we think about ourselves. We don't think about ourselves primarily through the lens of race or nation or land. That's, that's not who we are. That's not what defines us. And so we say, Adam, it's a little bit hard for us to understand this. And yet, what God was doing back in the nation of Israel, he's actually doing in us as well. You see, Peter understands this. If you fast forward 500 years from where we are in Israel, Israel will be rebuilt, Jerusalem will be rebuilt, and there will come someone from the line of Judah, from this very rebuilt clan named Jesus, who is the son of God, who will come and preach a gospel of salvation. And that gospel is not going to be simply for the Jews alone. This gospel will be for the entire world. Peter was a Jew. 
He grew up as a Jew. He knew his ancestral home. He knew which town he belonged to. All of those things that those Israelites would have valued, Peter valued as well. He understood that. He knew he was a part of God's plan. But he also knew that God had given a promise to Abraham. And said, Abraham, through you, through this nation, I'm gonna bless not just this country, but I'm gonna bless the whole world. And the people just thought that was all about Israel, but as Jesus comes on the scene, he changes Peter's mind to recognize that, Peter, I'm not just after one race, one nation, one land. I'm about salvation for the entire world. And through his death and resurrection, he brings that new salvation to us. And now as Christians are coming, not just from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, and as it begins to transcend cultural borders, natural, national borders, Peter begins to see the gospel being built, God's people being built. And so look at how he describes himself now in 1 Peter chapter 2. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. So way now in the New Testament... Peter is talking to churches of Christians, and I want you to listen to how he thinks about himself and about us. To Christians, he says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who don't believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Go back one slide to verses 9 and 10. Look what he says about us. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He is echoing all kinds of Old Testament language here. Every Jew would have understood this, but he's not just speaking to Jews. He's speaking to us. He's speaking to people who've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, who've recognized that we're sinners and we're lost and we can't save ourselves by any manner of sacrifices or good deeds, but Jesus Christ has given his life for us. He has ended the sacrifices and he has offered salvation by grace to anyone who would believe it. And so now God's people are not defined by a single race, a single land, a single nation. No, we are God's people transcending all races and national boundaries and all cultures. The gospel goes forth to create the kingdom of God where we have brothers and sisters in all places around the world, anybody who believes in Jesus Christ, these are the people that God is forming into his people. And that's the people to whom we belong. Look what he says, once you were not a people. 
We had our own nations and languages and races and tribes and lands and all of that. But now, you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. We have received mercy from Jesus Christ. He has made us his own. And now together, you and I are brothers and sisters in Christ. Because the same God who saved you is the same God who saved me. The same Holy Spirit living in you is the same one living in me. And in the brothers and sisters who are sitting with us and the ones that are across town and the ones that are across the country and the ones that are across the world, God says, I have built a people. This is who we are. Do you not see? We are all a part of God's larger unfolding story. Life is not about us not about you. It's not about me. It's not about your family. It's not about my family. It is about what God is doing all over the world. He has a salvation that you and I get to experience. And then look what he does in verses 11 and 12. This is interesting. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Interesting that. He uses the word exiles Sojourners was also mentioned back in that Ezra 1 passage. He's calling back to this period of history to say, don't you understand? This is not our home. This is not where we're supposed to get comfortable. Yes, we can build up our lands and our houses and our stuff, but this is not our home. God has a future plan for us. Plans to prosper us and not to harm us, to give us a hope and a future. And we are to be the outpost of that brand new place Beacons of hope, a city on a hill as you and I love one another and live in Jesus Christ, loving one another in Jesus Christ. This is who he has called us to be at this time, in this congregation, in this place. And so he says, will you follow me and recognize it's time to return, rebuild, and renew But because look, that's the season we find ourselves in. We're about to have to walk into a couple years of doing all of that. We're gonna have to return. It's been, I I didn't need to say, my heart has been warmed today by seeing people I have not seen in a year. Literally, it's happened multiple times this morning. I cannot get over it. I'm so excited. I really am. There's more, there's more. You need to come back. All right, look, they're watching online right now. We miss you and we need you back. Listen, it's been so good to see our people. God says, it's time to return. It's time for us to return. But when we return, we don't just come back and go, oh, great, I get a seat now. And we get to hang out. Hey, we're going to have to rebuild. Because it's been a rough couple years. And God has new things for us to do. We're, we're going to need people to rise up and lead. We're going to need people to rise up and work. We need people to rise up and serve, to love one another. It's going to be costly. And look, anybody can come and check in. A lot of people do. Anybody can check in. We can give a little. We can serve a little. We can attend a little. Anybody can do that. That typically doesn't cost us. But sooner or later, there's going to come a moment where God's going to say, hey, listen, you're not going to be able to do everything. You're going to have to disappoint somebody. You can't actually do everything in the universe. Don't listen to the world. They have lied to you. And sooner or later, you're going to have to make a call, and it's going to cost you to say, is this my place? 
Is this where God is calling me? Is God stirring up me by his Holy Spirit? Is he renewing me to say, listen, this is the place and it's important. Why? Not just for me or even just my family because of what God is doing in the world and at this place and at this time, just like he gave a specific call to the people of Babylon to say, go and return. Are we going to listen and say, this is the place God has called me and I am ready to follow? Because if we do, we join yet again into God's larger unfolding story that brings salvation, not just to us, but to everybody in this world, to our neighbors who desperately need it, to our family members who desperately need it, the hundreds of kids who will come on campus this week who desperately need to hear Jesus Christ. Right now, in this place, we have that opportunity, and so he really is asking us, will we return and rebuild and renew? That's what I want us to wrestle with this summer. We got a long time. We got, there's a lot to do. This isn't just like a, a one-time thing. It's going to take time for that to unfold, but as we do so, I think it's right for us to take communion When you came in today, you saw on your seat, we've got one of the little cups there. We're still not back to 100% normal. Uh, We're getting there. Well, we right there, you see inside, don't open it up yet, but you've got uh, some juice and then you have a tiny piece of bread. And so in just a few moments, we're gonna celebrate communion together. Now, remember where we were last week. Last week, Jeremiah prophesied and says, don't you understand there is coming a day when I'm gonna make a new covenant with my people. And we read this in Luke chapter 22. It says this. Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant In my blood, Jesus Christ fulfills that prophecy of Jeremiah and opens up a covenant not based on works, not based on how good we are, not based on how we can fix ourselves, but based on the finished work of Jesus Christ who loves us and gave his life for us that you and I might be part of the people of God, adopted, accepted, never going to be abandoned with a secure future and hope because Jesus Christ died for us. In just a moment, when we take the bread and the cup, that's what we remember, that we are communing with the Lord. And as you drink what represents his body and his blood, that those things were given for you. That he is in you. He is forgiven you we have a moment to commune with him but it's not just with him you see communion is not the kind of thing you do at home by yourself we do that here and we do it together because we're not just communing with him we're recognizing that we are all a part of God's larger story and that I am connected to my family of faith And we all partake together because he didn't just save me. He saved many, if not most of you. He saved us together. And we, as his people, have a chance to follow him and enjoy him wherever he leads. So if you would, bow your heads and close your eyes for just a second. 
We're going to sing a song in just a moment and prepare, and then after that first song, we'll have a chance to partake together, but we have a couple minutes. A couple minutes to prepare our hearts and to answer that question, who am I? What's my place in this world? It's a big question, but God has an answer. No, the world is not about you. It's not all about what you would like, but he says you're incredibly valuable and important. I made you on purpose. I adopted you into my family. And you have a vital role to play in my unfolding story. What would happen if that's how we thought of ourselves? If that's how I, we considered ourselves? And so over the next moments, maybe you just want to pray through that. Listen, communion is, is for the people of God. If you're not yet a believer, I, I would encourage you just to kind of abstain today out of respect for the Lord and respect for us. But please understand that there's not a person here who's excluded. Not a person here who's been rejected or left out. God's invitation is for you. Is it time to recognize you need forgiveness from him? that you can't fix it, but he can. What would happen if today we just chose to surrender everything to him and say, God, I can't make up a meaning on my own, but I can choose to be a part of the meaning you have made for me. And so I surrender to you. And so Heavenly Father, bless us. Could you open up our eyes? We just don't see things clearly. We don't think about it clearly but you see everything. You've seen all of our days from the first to the last. And you know exactly the amazing future we can have to you, with you. And so in this moment, Lord, we come to say thank you. That we could never have saved ourselves, but you have saved us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, we know that because of the Holy Spirit you put inside of us. And Lord, you have made us your people. And so Lord, help us just to see that, to see ourselves in light of who you are and what you are doing. And we will enjoy, Father, just the communion that we have with you and with this people. Prepare our hearts, Lord, as we sing. In your name we pray, amen.